As we open Luke 14, and I hope you do have your copy of God's Word open, this is the last parable we will look at. When the first of the year comes, we will begin a lengthy series, a multi-year series actually, on First and Second Peter. And so this is the last bite of the apple we'll have of the parables of Christ. I think it's right and fitting to close with this parable. It addresses a subject that's perpetually relevant for every believer. And about halfway in today, if you think, oh, this doesn't apply to me, then my friend, you're just the person I'm speaking to. This parable has Jesus at a powerful Pharisee's house for a Sabbath lunch, as Luke 14 opens in verse 1. And Jesus then has just performed, as we come up to our text, beginning in verse 7, Jesus has just performed a a miracle of healing a poor sick man in verse 4. And then he rebukes the Pharisees who are gathered around the table for their hypocrisy and their misunderstanding of the fourth commandment. In our text today, we are going to hear the Lord Jesus address, as I said, a subject of perpetual relevance for every follower of Christ, and that is the subject of personal, deep humility. Let's seek the help of the Holy Spirit now as we prepare to open this word. Our Father, we are unrighteous, and we need the righteousness of Christ. We are proud, and we need the lowliness of Jesus. We are foolish, and we need the wisdom of Christ. We are wandering sheep, and we need Jesus to be our good shepherd. We are undiscerning, and so give us Christ to be our discernment. We're impatient, and we need the long-suffering of Jesus. By this word, rework our priorities and our values, replace our worldly mindsets with the mind of Christ. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now, and guide us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago when Sandy and I lived in Las Vegas, we decided to go to the big box electronics store on Black Friday. You know what Black Friday is, don't you? It's the day after Thanksgiving when all the Christmas sales begin. We've noticed that a lot of stores are beginning their Black Friday sales in August now. Not sure what that means. But this store had advertised a sale on a computer. We needed a computer, and the sale was too good to pass up. The store was going to open up at 7 a.m., and we had people in our congregation who had done these things before. They said, you need to be in line by no later than 5 o'clock. So we said, okay, we can get up early. So that morning, we were there at 4.30 a.m., number 8 and number 9 in line. And as soon as we got there, the line began to stretch and grow, and it went around the backside of the building. Now, the interesting thing that was going on, we're always fascinated by Americans and how they do things like lines and stay in traffic lanes. And the interesting thing that was going on was these lines formed, and there were hundreds of people in line, and nobody was organizing the line or watching or managing. And everyone was civil and orderly until 6.55 a.m., Several carloads of people drove up all at the same time. And they leaped out of their cars and they ran to the front door and they formed a brand new line right next to the line. Well, things got ugly in about 10 seconds. The orderly line people began to yell at the interlopers, go to the back of the line. And the newcomers yelled back at them, try and stop us. The door swung open. There was a mad dash 
punches were thrown, lots of expletives exchanged, and afterwards, after we safely had our computer back home, we endlessly discussed this behavior. What drove people to be first and thoughtlessly push other people aside to get their desires? Well, it comes down to one issue, pride. In a deep sense that they were far more important than those other people who'd been in line three hours. And what we see in our text, I hope you're looking at it in Luke 14. What we see is the exact same thing in our text on this occasion. Now the Pharisees, as they sit around this, this lunch table on a Sabbath lunch, the Pharisees were watching and scrutinizing and studying Jesus, looking for any slip-up, any deviation from the law of God, but Jesus turns the tables on them. He's carefully studying them, and he sees to the very core of their being, and he finds the deepest rooted of all sins as he looks at them. Self-esteem, pride. When Jesus sees these Pharisees jockeying for position, he tells them a parable that goes for their hearts. And this isn't simply, you'll make a blunder of colossal proportions if you just think this morning that Jesus is telling them an etiquette lesson or a manners lecture. But this is an assertion of eternal gospel truths. Now at a banquet like this, the table would be set up in a, in a U shape, a horseshoe shape. And the head table was the one at the base of the U. And the seat of honor was the one at the middle of the middle seat at that table occupied by the host with all the guests gathered around. Everyone wanted to sit on the right or the left of the host at the table as close as they could to him. And what no Jesus notices, look carefully at verse 7 at the beginning of this. Jesus notices that all these Pharisees think very highly of themselves. Now, by the way, they, they all think that they belong in the place of honor all of these folks would have had Proverbs 25 memorized. It was very typical of all Pharisees to have the book of Proverbs memorized. And so they would have had memorized these words from Proverbs 25. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king. Do not stand in the place of the great. For it's better that he say to you, come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince. And they would know texts like Isaiah 13, that says, I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Jesus already in Luke's gospel, back in Luke 11, has pointed out that the Pharisees love the best of the seats. Jesus even pronounces a woe on them when he says in Luke 11, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the sanctuary. The pattern's obvious. For all their religious posturing, the Pharisees were an ambitious, self-seeking bunch. Human honor and recognition is what they craved. So Jesus begins to discuss the issue of choosing the lowest place. Look carefully at verses 8 through 10. Jesus draws a picture from an everyday occurrence, a wedding feast. Wedding feasts were carefully stratified. Everyone strictly sitting according to age, rank, and position. In Jesus' parable, look at it there in verse 8 to 10. A guest comes early, spots an open seat at the head table, and he goes for it. He seats himself there. All eyes are now on him. And that's what he lives for. He lives for recognition and exaltation. 
An honored guest, somebody who belongs at the head table, arrives a little late. And the host could not allow this guest, this, this exalted person who got there late, to sit in the back of the room. That would be an unbreachable, an unthinkable breach of etiquette. So the host rights all wrongs by taking the man sitting in the guest of honor's seat and says, uh, you need to go to the back, give place to this man. The self-exalter must now do the walk of shame. He has to slink to the back of the room. His pride has made him a laughingstock. And Jesus gives an imperative of what to do in these situations. Look what he says in verse 10. He says to his disciples, as a, as a, as a principle, do not sit down in the best place. Now he has much more in mind than just seating arrangements. Jesus is saying it's better to go to the lowest place first. Why? For several reasons. Because you could be shown that you thought too highly of yourself. Because there's never any shame upon the one who chooses the lowly place. Because humiliation always goes before exaltation, so sit in the lowest place. What is the danger that Jesus is addressing? The danger is overestimating one's status, abilities, and position. When you choose the lowest place, you run no other risk than that of being exalted. The Christian always operates on this principle that others are better than us. Remember how Paul takes this parable and he teaches it in a didactic form in Philippians 2. And he says to the church in Philippi, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others as more important than himself. Humility isn't thinking lowly of ourselves. It's simply not thinking of ourselves at all. Now notice there's a host. Look carefully at verses 8 through 10. There's a host. Someone who, someone who determines where everyone belongs. And just as at a wedding feast... The occupying of seats of honor doesn't depend on a man's self-assertive attitude, but the determination of the host. So any man's place in the kingdom depends on the host, who is Christ. The Christian should always choose the lesser place until God promotes him into a position of more responsibility and authority. This all comes into sharper view when we understand that this is the constant model of our Lord Jesus. You'll remember that occasion in Matthew 20 when the mother of James and John came lobbying Jesus for the best seats. Jesus told her that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And what Jesus tells her is, he took the place of shameful dishonor. He took the lowest place, the place of the cross, so that we might be exalted. And then Jesus states, moms and dads, I hope you're listening very carefully. Jesus states a profound kingdom principle in verse 11. Now, obviously, I hope you don't just tell your children this. I hope you model it to them. But in verse 11, Jesus states one of the foundational principles of the kingdom of God. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen to those words enter your ear. He who humbles himself 
will be exalted. The world tells us, in fact, it's pounded into our children's brains in preschool and up. The world tells us to elevate ourselves, promote ourselves. But Jesus says that if we do, God will bring us low. This is an immutable law of the kingdom of God. There's an ominous note to Jesus' words in verse 11. The proud man, the arrogant woman, who's pushy and must be recognized and have the best of everything, they will be humbled by God. John Calvin rightly said, the living God is an enemy to everyone who exalts himself. By the way, Jesus makes no exceptions. Look at that word in verse 11. It's a powerful word. It's a broad and expansive word. Whoever, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And so it doesn't matter if it's your four-year-old, your mom, your wife, you. It makes no difference who or how close they are to you. Don't make excuses for them. If they are you or self-exalters, Jesus will bring them down. In fact, he typically humbles the proud publicly. That's the nature of the kingdom. The proud are brought down, the humble are lifted up. I could give you 50 examples in scripture today. Think of some of those of of men exalting themselves and how God humbles them. King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, who's the, the, the monarch, <clears throat> the most important powerful man of the superpower of the day, the kingdom of Babylon. He exalts himself and the Lord turns him into a crazy beast who eats grass in Daniel 4. Or King Herod in Acts 12, same thing. He's a Roman emperor and he begins to boast and exalt himself until in Acts 12 he's struck down and eaten by worms and dies. Now the world does not believe. Look at this principle in verse 11. You can order your life and should order your life and your parenting around it. But the world does not believe this kingdom principle. Washington, D.C. certainly doesn't. Businesses don't. But this is a kingdom principle that lost men, natural men, will never understand. These are values. Verse 11, this is a value that will be grasped only when a man is born again and taught by the Holy Spirit. This is a promise. Look carefully at verse 11. This is a promise to be believed. It takes a living faith in the word of God to daily say, I'll leave it to Christ to do the exalting. I don't need to exalt myself. I can wait on his timing. Now notice carefully, look at verse 11. Who is to do the humbling? Self. This is a theme of the New Testament. Peter is, when we get to this section in 1 Peter 5, and I'm not kidding, in about 2024, October When we get to 1 Peter 5, 6, we will hear Peter say, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. One of the great things about humility is that it's a lifestyle, an attitude, and a practice that any believer can exercise. All Christians can't be missionaries or great preachers or lavish givers, but every Christian can, should, must be lowly. The youngest child and the oldest saint can humble themselves. And then Jesus expands this discussion. Look at verse 12 and 13. 
First, Jesus was telling people where to sit. Now in verse 12 and 13, he's going to tell people who to invite. This meal seems to have been that Jesus is having at a Pharisee's house, seems to have been something of a, of a closed shop, part of an endless round of invitations involving the same people. How easy. Guests like this are capable of returning the favor. But this isn't true hospitality given to the strangers and the needy. Look at verse 12 and what Jesus says. He says, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. This doesn't mean that a man should <clears throat> never show hospitality to his family and close friends, for we see Jesus often eating with his family and close friends. For example, in Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus dining with Lazarus, Mary and Martha, and dear friends. But Jesus is teaching. If you look at verse 12 and 13, stare at these words carefully. Jesus is teaching and commanding that a believer's kindness should also benefit those with no means of repaying him. The tense of the Greek verb is, do not always keep inviting your friends. Now our Lord's teaching is in exact accord with the Old Testament law, as these Pharisees should have known. For example, you have the mandated guest list for Jews when they celebrated annually the Feast of Tabernacles in Deuteronomy 16. Listen who was on that mandated guest list. Strangers, orphans, and widows. <clears throat> this kind of giving that obeys Jesus' words is a real test of a man's generosity. Seeking to associate with the lowly, those who can never repay, is true humility. If a man serves the poor and the disabled, that man is demonstrating humility. His motives are pure. For when you invite these people, they have nothing to offer except need. Jesus here is distinguishing between civility and charity. Civility is inviting your friends. Charity, inviting the lowly. Civility is always in our self-interest, but charity is a selfless act of love. Civility certainly has its play, place, and I'm all for it, but don't confuse it for real, charitable, sacrificial love. How easy it is to show kindness to those who will return it, and how hard it is to help people who will be nothing but trouble. If you're honest, you'll have to admit that many, perhaps most of your relationships are based on reciprocity. You know how that works. You watch my kids today and I'll pick yours up tomorrow. Nothing wrong with mutual assistance. But this is not a display of the mercy of God. Jesus gets beneath the actions here to the motives. He's addressing our deeply rooted self-love. When we're civil and showing reciprocity, it's always with the knowledge of an earthly repayment that we'll benefit. We'll <clears throat> get something back for it. But when was the last time that you did something for someone who will never be in a position to do anything for you? Jesus is commanding this practice because he wants you to be conformed to his pattern. For he invites outcasts and the spiritually bankrupt to his kingdom banquet. He wants you to be conformed to his image and to show grace to the undeserving. Your hospitality is to be a living illustration of the gospel, where kindness is dispensed to poor beggars who can never repay. Look at the motive for humility in verse 14. <clears throat> Perhaps right now you're saying to yourself, 
But Carl, if I make it a practice to show kindness to the people you're talking about, I'll never get repaid. Oh, yes, you will. In fact, you'll be repaid exceedingly. Look at verse 14. There is a resurrection day. And Jesus makes the promise. You shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And the believer is marked by this. He's always looking forward to the resurrection day, ordering his life by it. The converted man knows that this life is not all there is. He knows as he stands at the graveside of a loved one that the day is coming when the trumpet will sound and all the dead will be raised. Let's note Jesus' own teaching in John chapter 5. He says, The hour is coming in which all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. One of the great truths surrounding the Bible's doctrine of resurrection is that all things will be made right on that day. And on that day, not before, God will take notice of your gracious, self-giving, and will reward you. Doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 25 that he's repaying those who showed hospitality to the least of these? I want to make several applications, and you're thinking at this point, Carl, you've just pretty much only been making application. Oh, no, now I want to get up in your face. Now I want to be personal. First application. This context is all about humility. That's the point of the parable. Do you understand what humility is? Humility, humility is right knowledge of self. A humble man is one who truly knows the darkness of his own heart. And he knows the holiness and majesty of Christ. A humble man like Jacob in Genesis 32 cries out, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies you've shown me, O Lord. A humble man agrees with Job in Job chapter 40 when he confesses, I am vile. A humble man will agree with Paul in 1 Timothy 1 when Paul states, I am the chief of sinners. A humble man considers anything good enough for him and far better than he deserves. A humble man, in obedience to Philippians 2, esteems others as better than himself. Ignorance. Ignorance of self, ignorance of Christ is underneath all pride. From such miserable self-ignorance, you should pray to be delivered. Your regular prayer should be, Lord, show me my lowliness and your greatness and humble me. Second application. <clears throat> if you're not a note taker, I hope you will be at this point. Do you know how to humble yourself? Because that's the repeated mandate of Jesus to the proud, to humble self. Please don't think in this process of being humbled, you're simply passive and God will just humble you apart from any means or labor or striving. No, we are to use the means and actively engage in self-humbling. Begin by seeing pride and self-assertion as a root sin. Indeed, Isaiah 14 tells us this was Lucifer's first sin, his pride. And you should labor to recognize that in every case, pride is hated and opposed by God. He hates pride passionately because it's that wicked attitude that refuses to acknowledge dependence upon him. Repeatedly in Scripture, 
The Lord tells us, for example, in Proverbs 6, that he hates pride and he's opposed to the proud man. And so let me give you seven ways to humble yourself. Seven tasks. The first way to humble yourself is humble yourself by mortifying your ambition for honor. Humble yourself by mortifying your ambition for honor. In James chapter 3, we're warned, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not lie and boast against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. Self-seeking, a desire to be honored, does not flow out of a humble heart. And a heart that's interested in deflecting the glory and turning the spotlight on Christ. Third John Verse 9 provides a great example of a man who was ambitious and wanted to be honored by other men. His name was Diotrephes. He wanted to be first and to be regarded most highly by the people in his church. And this man refused to accept the inspired writings and teachings of the Apostle John. He couldn't stand for anyone else's personal work to be honored. A great example of a man who had mortified ambition for honor and reputation was John the Baptist. In 1 John 1, or in John 1, when he was at the peak of his ministry, John the Baptist was asked, who are you? Oh, we love it when people ask us that. That opens the door for us to talk about ourselves all day long. Our family, our accomplishments, our education. John the Baptist could have done that. He came from an impressive pedigree. He was the son of one of the leading priests of the day, Zechariah. But instead of telling the questioners who he was, he told them who he wasn't. He was not the Christ. When they continued to press him, who are you? What do you say about yourself? He would only shine the spotlight brighter on Jesus. John the Baptist got it. He understood. He had mortified his fleshly passion for the honor of men. A second way to humble yourself. Humble yourself by reflecting on the cross. The cross will never flatter you. I think of Isaac Watts' glorious hymn. We sing it regularly here. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Every time you meditate on the cross, reflect on it and remember it. Jesus is saying, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying. Nothing else puts you in your right place like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourself, especially our self-righteousness, until we come to the cross. It's then that we shrink down to our true size. A third way that you humble yourself Humble yourself by meditating on God's greatness. If you meditate on a vision of God in His holiness, like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, you'll cry out, Woe is me, I'm unclean. If you meditate on His omnipresence, that He's everywhere equally present, I, on the other hand, can only be in one place, and even then I'm usually not fully there. Meditate on the greatness of God and His attributes. That will humble you. A fourth way to humble yourself. Humble yourself by studying the doctrines of grace because they crush human pride. Several years ago, there was a gentleman who 
visited here, and I was talking about one of the doctrines of grace, talking about effectual calling, and at the back door this man said, you were positively giddy when you were talking about effectual calling. Why, why are you so excited about this? I said, well, for no other reason than every time we talk about sovereign grace, it crushes men's pride. God has intentionally designed your salvation so that no man has any room to boast. He didn't merely arrange your salvation so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so that human boasting, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, would be absolutely excluded. Think about your salvation, your election, done by God before the foundation of the world. Your atonement, done by Christ who cried out then, it is finished. What about your calling and drawing, done by God? Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. What about your regeneration, that taking out of the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh, done by God the Holy Spirit? And part of why I love the glorious doctrines of grace, or Calvinism, is because they give all the glory to God, and they humble me low. A fifth way you can humble yourself. Humble yourself by spending time with humble people. We learn from example, behavior is contagious. That's why Proverbs 13 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Single out a godly, lowly saint and purposefully spend time with them. Parents, this is a special challenge for you. If you desire your children to be humble, you must model humility for them. A sixth way you can humble yourself. Humble yourself by intentionally transferring the glory to God. My favorite Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, When we have done anything praiseworthy, we must hide ourselves under the veil of humility and then transfer any glory of what we have done immediately to God. A few years ago, a historian whose writing I appreciate was accused of plagiarism. And as I heard about the scandal, I thought, how could they steal another's work and take credit for it as though it were their own? And I realized I take credit for something good in my life all the time, and I'm guilty of the same thing. My friends, it is he who's at work both in you to will and to do his good pleasure. The seventh way you can humble yourself. Humble yourself by laughing at yourself and letting others do so as well. I could talk about this for hours. Martin Luther has a marvelous treatise on how the devil is so vain and the one thing he can never stand is for Christians to mock him and laugh at him and so he flees. My friend, here's how you know immediately this morning, I could have just began and said this and then sit down and you would have appreciated it more. This is how you know if you are proud. The proud man can never take a joke. I know some of these people. The proud man, I may have been some of these people. The proud man can never take a joke. He's incensed at the thought that anyone would laugh at him. What do you do when others laugh at you? Where do you learn to live in such humility? From the Lord Jesus Christ, who came all the way down taking the lowest place. And now, as a result, he is exalted to the highest place in all of heaven and creation. He is the model. Humiliation must precede exaltation. 
This text as well as an encouragement to you. You who are already serving. You who never receive any thanks or recognition or repayment. Look at verse 14. Jesus will repay. You will not go unrewarded. But remember, what Jesus commands, he himself has done. To the great feast in the kingdom of God, he has already called the lowly, the abased, the weak. In fact, he has not invited many noble or great or honorable, but he's invited people like you and I. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come lowly repenting this morning for our pride, our ambition, our self-esteem and self-seeking for honor. Lord, we ask, and we do so with trepidation now, that you would use whatever means it takes to crush our pride, hardships, rebuke, failure, humiliation. But Lord, instead, take away all of our self-honoring and replace it with lowliness that we might be conformed to our lowly Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.